today on The Filmpreneur, an in-depth conversation with Alex Ferrari, who's a filmmaker, a podcaster, an entrepreneur, an author, and uh, probably more stuff too, because as you'll soon find out, his life has been uh, a bit crazy and eventful, to say the least. Now, there are a lot of great takeaways in this interview, but we spend a ton of time talking about the psychology of filmmaking, basically how to get out of your own way, how to make feature films quickly and cheaply, and exactly what to look for when you get offered a distribution deal. Plus, Alex shares one of the most useful contract negotiation tips I've ever heard, so you'll definitely want to stay tuned. Let's get to it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long-form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just wanna thank my good friends over at Musicvine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Musicvine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. So if you're an indie filmmaker who's gone near the internet in the last few years, you almost certainly already know Alex Ferrari. He's the founder of Indie Film Hustle, which is one of the most popular indie film podcasts and blogs for about four years running now. He's also got a streaming platform called Indie Film Hustle TV. It's basically, it's just full of cool educational stuff for filmmakers plus movies and whatnot. And he's got a new book called Shooting for the Mob about his batshit insane experiences earlier in his life. Basically, Alex is like a one-man media machine, but he's also a talented entrepreneurial filmmaker in his own right. In the early 2000s, he made nearly a hundred grand selling a short film, which is just crazy. It blows my mind. We talk about that in the conversation. And then over the last three years, He's made a pair of micro-budget features using improvisational techniques to keep the cost down and the production time super short. Not only that, but both of those features are well into profit territory as well. What I'm getting at is that Alex is basically a textbook filmpreneur. The dude has creativity and hustle and entrepreneurial spirit in spades, and there's a lot that we can learn from him. 
So without any further ado, let's get into the conversation with Alex Ferrari. And he starts off by sharing the 10,000 foot view of his crazy career so far. Here's Alex. I, I started off uh, in a video store back in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's where I fell in love with making movies. I, uh, I looked around my bedroom one day when I got out of high school and said, well, I guess, uh, what am I going to do with my life? I looked around and had 3,000 VHSs on my walls from my collection I I accumulated over the years. And I said, I guess I want to be a director. And then I just, that was the, that was the moment. I just, I never stopped looking back at that point, went to film school, learned barely anything there, uh, (laughs) changed, uh, changed, uh, learned everything on the streets after I got, after I was released, if they, as they say, and then I got started in editorial and, and becoming an editor. And uh, from there, I went on to direct commercials, music videos, uh, short films, and then eventually my feature films. And uh, I, I wrote a whole book about one of the darkest times of that. You know, I'm, I'm really just doing the, the Reader's Digest version of this, like really quick skimming over because I could go on for hours about this. But, well, um, but go ahead. Let's talk about the book because <laughs> I'm still not convinced that this is a true story of a real thing that happened okay, to you. So I'm just going to read you, uh, and here's the book for everyone watching. Uh, I'm going to read you the back of the book because it's the easiest way for me to get the story out. Okay. A, bi- a bipolar gangster, a naive young film director, and Batman. What could go wrong? Alex Ferrari is a first-time film director who just got hired to direct a $20 million feature film. The only problem is the film is about Jimmy, an egomaniacal gangster who wants the film to be about his life in the mob. From the backwater towns of Louisiana to the Hollywood Hills, Alex has taken on a crazy misadventure through the world of the mafia and Hollywood. Huge movie stars, billion-dollar producers, studio heads, and, and of course, a few gangsters populate this unbelievable journey down the rabbit hole of chasing your dream. Would you sell your soul to the devil to make your dream come true? By the way, did we mention that the story is based on true events? No, seriously, it is. Okay. <laughs> So like before we were recording, he told yeah. me that this book was a true story and I, I didn't fucking believe him. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, all right. I guess really give me, help. give me the, give me the cliff notes version of this. Uh, basically I was 26 years old. I was approached by uh, a retired gangster to make a movie about his life. And because I was raised uh, or came up in the late eighties, early nineties where independent film was kind of born that time period, that Sundance, Robert Rodriguez, Tarantino, Kevin Smith era, where every week or every month there was a new story or mythological story of you know a film being made for $27,000 and then they got a Hollywood deal. That was the dream that I was chasing even in the, uh, was it, it was pretty much the early 2000s, happened in about 2001. So by the time Jimmy got a hold of me, I was already full blown into that mindset of like oh i this has got to be my shot this is this is my mariachi this is my clerks this is my slacker or you know she's got to have it or in many of the other examples so uh i was ripe for the picking and i was uh, very green about the world i was very unworldly not very educated in the ways of the streets as they say I had been directing a bit already. I had already been editing and I'd been in the business at that point for probably seven years or eight years, something like that. It's about seven years. And uh, so I, I, had, I had chops without question. I had chops to do this. And, but uh, by the time I realized what I had what I'd signed, if you will, 
I mean, I literally signed the, the deal with the devil. I sold my soul. I signed my soul away to the devil uh, just for the mere opportunity for the dream, not even for the dream, just for the mere opportunity to maybe get the dream. By the time I realized what was going on, it was too late. And uh, it was like going to work with Jimmy, uh, going to work with uh, Joe Pesci from Goodfellas every day. Like when he was fun, he was, man, he was the best guy ever to hang out with. But, but at a moment's notice, like I'll crack you over this, the, the, the head with a, a shovel and throw you in a ditch somewhere. And that's really difficult for, for anybody to deal with, let alone a 26-year-old kid who really had no preparation or defense against something like that. Yeah. Let me ask uh, you... And, uh... You mentioned you signed your soul away. What what was this contract? And it wasn't a contract. It was just literally. Oh, it doesn't okay. matter, man. Do you yeah. think mobsters deal in contracts? Okay. All right, no, dumb Rob. <laughs> like <laughs> naive do you, Rob. Do you think the Godfather asked his son? Well, he did actually sign a contract, but that was a different kind of contract. This was, you know, it was just not a real. It was just you're in. You know, once you're in, you're in. And. um I, I, get, I was just there and, and he had me and, and I was on this journey with him for about a year of my life. And, you know, we moved into a racetrack as our production offices. I can't make this stuff up from like the 50s or 60s. So you can actually feel or smell the cancer coming off the walls. It was amazing. And, uh, and that story would have been amazing. Just me trying to make a movie for a mobster, but then Hollywood actually took him seriously. And I was flown out to LA and I met the biggest movie stars in the world. I'm at the Chateau Marmont having drinks. I'm at the Ivy. I'm at Spago's I'm meeting studio heads. I'm in big penthouse apartments of some billion dollar producers. I even got to meet Batman. I have a whole chapter on how I met one of the actors who played Batman, where I went to, essentially Wayne Manor and hung out with Alfred. And, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm like dead serious. Like I was there and, and his house was so big. It was insane. And, and, you know, when you're so close to your dream, like you're literally inches away from Batman and Batman saying, I want to be in your movie and I like you. Will you sleep over to this? You know, you want to hang out for the weekend, stay at my house and we'll just work on the script. When that's happening, and of course, Jimmy said no, because he wasn't invited, uh, you know, but then I had to go. I mean, when you're that close multiple times, you know, it's, it's really tough on the psyche. So when I finally left that situation or escaped that situation, uh, it took me about two years of depression to get out. I almost went bankrupt. I was, uh, it, you know, I literally hid inside of a garage sorting comic books and selling them on eBay. Uh, to make a living because I couldn't do anything in the film business. There was just no business where I was and I didn't have any energy to kind of hustle. I know, which is hard for people who know me <laughs> to understand that I didn't have energy to hustle, but I didn't, I was, I was defeated. I was just absolutely um, broke and broken uh, at the same time. So, uh, you know, eventually I've got myself out and I eventually pulled my way out of the, the, the gutter, if you will, or the ditch that I'd put myself in. But it is a very, very, um, what's the word? It was a very good learning lesson for me. And it, you know, a lot of people who listen to me and my podcast, you know, they, you always wonder where that grizzled voice on the other end of the microphone came from. Uh, that grizzled voice of like, you know, people, the guy who has shrapnel 
you know, I've, I've taken lots of shrapnel in the business over the last 25 years. I'm like, this is the origin story. This is when the radioactive spider bit me. You know, this is where, not that I'm a superhero by any stretch, but, um, but that's when it started. That was the first real, real experience about what this business was like. Uh, and it's an extreme experience. I mean, most people are never going to experience this. But when I wrote the book, I wanted to kind of put something out there because it took me 18 years to cut the courage to write it. You know, I was scared of Jimmy. I didn't want to, you know, who wants to go back to the darkest time of their life and live there for a year while they write a book about it? Like, who does that? You know, who wants to do that? So it took me a long time to, um, to even get the courage to do it. And then I would skip chapters as I was writing because I knew where emotionally I was going to go. I would cry while I wrote this. Like that's how, I mean, I was drained after some of these chapters that I was writing because it's just the darkest times of your life. And it was as, it's an extremely raw account of what happened. I, I made the decision and I promised myself, I'm like, if we're going to go down this road, there's not going to be any hiding. There's not going to be any sugarcoating. It's going to be as raw of an experience that you'll ever read in your life. And everyone who has read it that I know of, or spoken to or read reviews about, everyone sees that and feels it because it is, it is the journey of the filmmaker. It is a journey of an independent filmmaker and is the, the reverse. It's the upside down version of Rebel Without a Crew, yeah. basically. Yeah. It is the complete flip side of that coin uh, of Rebel Without a Crew because his went one way, mine went another. And um, that's what it was. But I wanted to put it together to make it an allegory of what not to do when you're chasing your dreams. Uh, and also to give hope to people in and outside of the business that if you are in a bad situation, you have a choice to leave. You have a choice to leave that situation. It's always a choice. It might not be a fun choice, not be a popular choice, but you do have a choice to leave. If you can't, you can't leave. And I wanted to give people hopefully the inspiration and the power to do so. Uh, and that's the main reason I kind of wrote the book because I don't need my face out there anymore. I'm good. I'm like, I, I, I promote myself quite a bit. But this book is coming from a place of service. I really wanted to put this story out there to really hopefully help people. And, and you know, like if you're a film student and you read this, my God, you'll be so far ahead of the game than I was, obviously, um, than, than when you started because it does show a lot of what this business is like. And I've read and I've, I've spoken to a lot of industry professionals, high-end guys who've read this, you know, um, one of the one of my uh, a friend of mine, Jim Ools, um, who wrote Fight Club, he gave me a wonderful uh, um, review on this. And when he when he read it the first time, he emails me. He's like, "This is fiction, right?" <laughs> he goes, "No, no, Jim, this is real." Like, yeah. Well, that's that's what I you, assumed because I read. Yeah, the, he's like, I read the blurb <laughs> and I was like, oh, "There's no fucking way that's real." But apparently, and, and, and here he we says are. like, "Yeah." He goes, "Is this really happening?" Because, dude, you. Then I, I love when he emailed me. It's like, dude, you, you've lived a hell of a life. You lived a crazy life so far. And I'm like, this is the dude who wrote Fight Club and saying that my life is crazy. So it was humbling to say the least. But that's, that's the story. So that is a, a small, small, one of the small pockets of shrapnel that I've received yeah. in my journey as a filmmaker. Well, so you mentioned that it's kind of an allegory for what not to do in a film career. I'd, I'd love to just dig into that. Like sure. what are, what are people doing that isn't working? That isn't serving them in some way. 
Oh, well, I think the biggest thing is that you will tell yourself a story in your mind and you will start eating crap or putting up with abuse for the mere opportunity to maybe get to your dream. And there are people out there who will benefit from that, who will abuse that. Like how many people right now, as we're speaking in LA, in Hollywood or around the world for that matter, are taking abuse from a boss, from a, 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 an investor, from, you know, from a person in power or a person who can give that person their dream or access to that dream or resources to get that dream. And they're taking abuse and they're being swindled or they're taking it, being taken advantage of every second of every day. And I think it's, you know, look, we all have to pay our dues, you know, that there's a term pay our dues. You know, we have to bust our balls. We've got to, you know, we got to do crap jobs we don't want to do. And there's a difference between paying your dues and being abused. You know, that's a very distinct difference. You know, did I have, you know, bipolar bosses in my day? Absolutely. I had my first boss was a bipolar commercial director who yelled and screamed one day when he didn't take his medicine. And the next day he was the best, nicest guy you've ever met in your life. And I was 21, you know, and then five years later, Jimmy shows up and he's also a bipolar, you know, gangster. So it was like up an up a notch, you know, it was just up a notch, uh, 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 significantly up a notch uh, on it. But I think that's one of the biggest things that filmmakers do and that don't serve themselves is they tell themselves stories that, that, allows them to be taken advantage of because of a million reasons. Uh, and in generally, the larger problem is I think we all tell ourselves stories that disempower us in one way, shape, or form. Like, I can't write that screenplay. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have the camera I, I need to make this movie the way I want to make it. I can't get these. At the end of the day, it's all about fear. It's all about fear. You're just terrified. And as soon as you understand that everybody else on this planet is terrified, just like you, about a million different things, whether it's about dying alone, whether it's not succeeding, whether it is succeeding, uh, you know, whether it's failure, whether it's billions of dollars, whatever the, the reason is, at the core of everybody, there is a fear of one shape or form, whatever that might be. And if you understand that everyone's coming from that place, whether, and again, I could go on forever about the different kinds of fears, but if you understand that those, that everyone's coming from that place, then you can adjust your thinking and you can adjust the stories that you tell yourself and you can tell yourself stories that empower you rather than disempower you. And that took me a long time to realize and figure out because I've been telling myself stories for decades, decades. A lot of it started with Jimmy. Jimmy was one of the reasons why I didn't direct a feature till 40 years, until I was 40 years old. Because on a subconscious level, I didn't want to make a feature because my brain was trying to protect me because it associated make feature film with immense amount of pain and disappointment. So on a subconscious level, I constantly was creating obstacles in front of myself. I would surround myself with people who were not very good for me or didn't, want, didn't do the job I really wanted them to do. And on a subconscious level, I was doing it all purposefully. And I was like, why can't I ever get above this? And only after self, some very deep self-evaluation did I realize that I was doing it to myself. And once I decided to break that pattern in my own neuro 
pathways and actually uh, tell myself a different story is when I made my first feature film. And then once I made that first feature film, then my brain's like, oh, okay, we didn't die. Okay, we could do more of these then. And that's, but that goes with everything. Like you were telling me before we got on air that you just started working out really heavily and, and you're doing really well and you do, you're creating all these new habits. But I'm sure those first few days, your brain was telling you, stop. This is ridiculous. Who are you? What are you doing? This is not who you are. Yep. Because it was afraid still, of change. Still is on it's, certain days. Right, because, it's, it, because it's, it, it takes a while before those neural passages and the, the, the pathways get reprogrammed and, and the new hardwiring gets laid in because it takes time. Because at the end of the day, your subconscious and your mind is, and I, I tell people this all the time, your mind doesn't give a crap about your happiness. It is not built to make you happy. It is built to keep you alive. That is the purpose of the mind, period. End of story. It's about the tiger around the corner that's going to eat you. And you waking up at five o'clock in the morning to go work out in the Arizona heat is the tiger. The feature film that you have yet to make is the tiger. The girl that you want to go ask out on a date is the tiger. All of these things are the things that can kill you or in, in there and it's in, in your own mind are potentials for, for killing you in one way, shape or form since we don't generally worry about the tiger around the corner killing us. These are the new, these are the new tigers in our life. The thing I would just add to that, cause you touched on so much great stuff there that we've talked about before in our previous mm -hmm. interview that like I covered in that whole mega season of the podcast around psychology but the thing that just has to be stressed is when you you have these stories that are disempowering, you have habits or whatever that are holding you back. And again, most most filmmakers, most people in general are their own worst enemy. And they'll tell themselves stories about why it's something outside of themselves. But ultimately, it Always. comes down to, uh, well, and it makes us feel better. It, it's a rationalization. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course, but, we're trying to make ourselves feel better. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the thing I've learned is that you there is no way to think yourself out of that situation. You can't just say like, oh, I have a lot of confidence now. I'm going to go get it. You have to act your way out of the situation and then the beliefs follow. Mm -hmm. um, you have to create new patterns of behavior, even though you don't believe it, especially when that new behavior is uncomfortable and your brain is screaming at you to stop. Like the working out thing is a, is a perfect example because like I have spent my whole life as somebody who's pretty fucking lazy and just doesn't move. And I've built a, like an entire identity around like, oh, I'm just an office worker and I sit in this chair and I type and I don't work out and like all of that crap. Mm -hmm. um, but the only way to change that is by changing that. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't just tell myself that, oh, my new identity is that of a person who works out, who's strong, who has like the agility and all that crap. You have to do it first and prove it to your mind so that you can create that new belief in the long run. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable. And you have to be okay with that discomfort and lean into that discomfort because that's the only way that growth actually happens. So that is the only way. That's the only way that you're going to grow. You're only going to grow when you're uncomfortable. You're only going to grow in places that you're going to, when you break outside of the limitations or the mind or the construct that you've built in your head around certain things in your life, if you're not comfortable outside of that, you'll never make it. And most people don't. Most people, like, uh, it's a great quote I always love using. Uh, Robin Schwama said that most people die at 20 and are buried at 90. 
it, it's it's so true because they just don't want to. I don't want to go out. And it's it's funny. I actually just did a podcast about that this week. Was when you start doing something and you start breaking out, like there might be people around you who will take be threatened by you breaking away and you doing your own thing. So if everybody else around you is fat, lazy, and out of shape, if you become the guy that's like, I'm going to change my diet, I'm going to go vegan, I'm going to work out every single day, and I'm going to be insanely healthy, and I'm going to become an athlete at whatever age I'm at, and everybody else around them is going to go, wait a minute, no, 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 let's pull, let's pull them back, let's pull this crab back into the bucket before he gets out too far because his, his success is a, is a, is a direct um, commentary on how my failures are. That's the way yeah. the mind would think, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're tribal. We're hardwired to, to conform to the people around us. And like we were talking about it before, it's, it's like we all have this innate craving for a sense of belonging and a sense of, um, I don't know what it community. is. Community. Yeah. Community. Co- yeah. It's community. And, um, but, yeah, go ahead. No, that's what we, that's, that's what, that's what made us survive as a species. We are not a strong species physically. There are many species on this planet that will just destroy us in a second. The only thing we have is not only our, our brain power, our thinking power, but our ability to work together in large groups mixed with that brain power is why we're the dominant species on this planet. And when you break away from the group by yourself, that breaks a lot of rules on an evolutionary point, from an evolutionary point of view. And that, that is, you know, we're, we're, we're in a primal, what we're talking about is primal now. We're talking about things that are hardwired in us from hundreds of thousands of years, and they don't serve us anymore. They, they, we're not in that world. We've designed a world for ourselves that we don't have to worry about the tiger around the corner, you know, but now. But our brain uh, is still programmed to, well, and that's the thing, even though we don't have these, these physical dangers in our environment anymore like our brain is still programmed to look for any and all problems and then it generally oh it's a negative thing yeah it's all negative it finds like the internal the psychological problems which creates all this anxiety that spins out of control oh no it's now the rent is due yeah the girlfriend is a girlfriend or boyfriend is yelling at me the boss is on my ass that is the new stress that is the new thing that is that the brain holds on to because it's not the tiger anymore it's, it's the other stuff. It's all this other stress. And then when you create more stress, your body suffers, then it just, it just compounds itself. And then, you know, and try to be a filmmaker in that world is, is, you know, is, is almost impossible. And being a director and being a filmmaker in general is an extremely stressful job when you're on set and you're trying to, depending even on the size of the budgets and dealing with people's egos and people's agendas and trying to corral basically wet cats. Uh, many times, you know, it's like herding wet cats sometimes uh, on some some film sets. So, you, you know, if you walk in there in not good shape, mentally not prepared, you, you're just going to crack and you won't make a, you won't make it long term. And that's something that film schools definitely don't talk about. No. And like <laughs> you could argue that's that's like the the fundamental skill for just life, like is is building that that mental toughness that that self-awareness around around your stories around your the ways that you limit yourself mm-hmm. and then just becoming a like for me like maybe this is just the point of my my life but like it's about becoming a tough motherfucker who can't be stopped 
like mm-hmm. unfuckable um, with. You have, un- to, you have to be un- unfuckable. Unfuck with. Unfuckable. Unfuckable withable. That's yeah. It, that's it. <laughs> Not it. unfuckable. <laughs> you don't want to do unfuckable. Yeah. Unfuckable bit withable. Whatever that is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, love it. Well, that was a fun foray into uh, <laughs> into our the depths of our psychology. Um, <laughs> I want to hear about like we're I want to later we're going to get into like your feature films and the, like the business side mm-hmm. of those. But I want to hear about this this entrepreneurial streak that you have, because like I know you you have had a post company. You sold olive oil at some point. I know that it's a thing that you did. <laughs> Um, yes. now you, now you run like indie film hustle and like all of these things. And so you, you have the entrepreneurial side to you and I'm wondering where that came from and how you developed it. Um, I've been, I, I kind of came programmed that from the factory like that. There are certain things that I feel that you, you are born innately with. There is some, I think we're all born with a motherboard. Some people, that motherboard, some, some of them are athletic. Some of them are, you know, better in math, better in science. There's things that you are built to do a little bit better than other people. Uh, even for, like literally just coming out of the womb, you have that inside you. Then the first seven years of your life, you're programmed by your surroundings, your parents, your community, and all that kind of stuff. So that's where all the garbage comes in. Whatever those first seven years are will pretty much determine the rest of your life and the stuff that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, for those seven years. So in those first seven years for me, I was surrounded. um, The only person that really had an impact on me was my grandfather, who was an entrepreneur, who, but he was, he, you know, he was a, he was a hustler, man. He was a, I mean, he hustled hard, but he came from Cuba when he was 55 with nothing in his pockets and started from scratch because he had already built multiple businesses owned a lot of properties and, and ranches and houses and everything in Cuba with a third grade education. But when the communist party came in, they took everything away from him. So he literally left, started scratch in a new country with not knowing the language at 55. I can't even comprehend that. Yeah, dude, that's gangster. And he built up and he built up on his, his world again over the next 10, 15, 20 years, he built up his world again. And I watched him do that and how to sell things and stuff like that. But one of the big lessons that I realized that was, that was a really great lesson that, you know, he was like, oh, hard work, work ethic, all that is great. But with that said, he only could go so far. So he only understood dollars for hours. He did not understand anything else. So it was a very limiting belief I had in my head about money and what, how much money I could actually achieve in my life, how much abundance actually could come into my life. So when my mind was set, like all I can, you know, I'm the, I'm the dude that makes, let's say a hundred grand a year, 50 grand a year. That's, that was the mindset for a long time until you find like, well, wait a minute. And I, I think I could do more than that. And I could do, but because I had that mindset in my head, I'd, I'd given myself a topper mm-hmm. because of that that lesson that I was learned that was hardwired into me. Yeah. And then like, you, Oh, you got to work yeah, hard. Start like for a little while. You're like, yeah, I'm going to have a hundred K year, whatever that, that upper threshold is. But then because of that internalized story or that, that belief that, and it usually comes down to, I'm, I'm not worth it. I don't deserve it. Like there's some, well, yeah, there's something, there's some of that, but also the thing is that you can't, um, 
you know, when you're working for dollars for hours, that's not how wealthy people get wealthy. Wealthy people don't work hard and make a lot of money with their money. Um, they have revenue streams. They understand, you know, business in a different level than we do. That's why rich people stay rich and poor people stay poor because of the programming that we're raised with. I mean, there's how many times have you met someone who was wealthy who was a complete moron? And you're like, how is this guy, what, you know, how did he fail up? Well, it was because of the program he got when he was, when he was those first seven years. He was just surrounded by it. So on a subconscious level, he knows what he needs to do, even though he's an absolute idiot about other things. You know, so that's where I got the hustle from. Um, and it, it did help me for many, for much of my life. But now at this stage in my life, I started to realize, I'm like, you know what? I can't, I can't pound it as hard that way like I used to and only get so much out of it. I need to start thinking smarter, not harder. And this is a guy who wears the word hustle on his hat generally, uh, you know, all the time. So I'm, I'm a hustler and the work ethic is still there, but now it's just, shifted into a different place where now you have to be a little bit smarter about how you allocate your energies, how you create revenue streams, how you create wealth or abundance in your life, how you could be of service to your own community uh, and things like that. How can you service your customer or your community? These, there's so many different avenues of it, but I've, I've, I've been, look, man, when I moved to LA, I moved to LA 11 years ago. So this is a perfect example of the, of the entrepreneurial and hustle combined. Right before I came here, I knew two people in LA. I knew nobody. So I was literally going to show up. We rented an apartment in North Hollywood. We were going to get uh, two rooms, one for me and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And the other room, I was going to set up a, a, an edit suite with my Final Cut Pro edit, editing system. All right. And, uh, and I was just going to show up with my website. I mean, I'd already been, I had 10 years of, 10, 12 years of stuff underneath me at that point. Uh, so I, it wasn't like a kid just coming out. I had credits. I've worked with big companies and things, but, but I didn't know anybody. So what I did was, uh, you know, remember Hollywood videos, right? When they were started to go out of business. <laughs> yeah. So they all started to go out of business. And during that time, I, uh, I had bought and sold a bunch of their, you know, I buy some DVDs and I'd sell them on Amazon or I'd buy some DVDs and sell them on Amazon and, you know, make a little profit here and there. So right before we left about two weeks before we, we moved, the Hollywood video around the corner from us finally went under and they finally shut it down. They were shutting it down. They were doing that, you know, blah, you know, going out of business sale. So I told my wife, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something. You have to trust me on this. She's like, okay. So I walked in to Hollywood video and I asked for the manager and I go, can I speak? Can I please speak to the manager? What do you need? I'm like, I just need to speak to the manager. Please. Can, I, can you get him? The manager comes. What can I do for you, sir? I'm like, I need everybody in the, in the, in the, in the store to please leave. And they go, why? He goes, because I'm buying all of your inventory. And they're like, really? He goes, I will make a deal for everything and you can go home now. And he's like, well, let's talk. And I busted out my Discover card and I dropped about 12, I think $12,000. And I bought everything. I bought all the DVDs. I bought all the games, everything. And my mind was, well, if we get to LA and I can't get a job for six months, at least I can sell DVDs and make a living. And that was my hustle. That was my backup plan. So I packed them all up in boxes and we got to LA and we started selling. It took about six, eight months. I think we generated around $30,000 with that. Um, back in the day where you could sell DVDs like that on Amazon. And we did. And that was, that was kind of like, that's the hustle. 
that is the entrepreneurial spirit of doing it. But by the way, by the time I landed in LA, I already had a feature film waiting for me here. Uh, I already had an old client call me that with a $5,000 gig, like I was working literally, I, I had to rush to build my system so I could start working fast. And then the crisis happened, the financial crisis happened three months later, but I was solid. And my wife got a job two weeks after she got here and we sailed right through the financial crisis. Thank God. You know, we were, we're very, very lucky, very, very blessed. And we were always working, always, always working during that time. Don't get me wrong. I had some other issues um, with the financial crisis, but it wasn't that. Uh, but, but we were make, I was always working. I was never not working and never money was never not coming in uh, during that time. So that's a really good example of the entrepreneurial spirit and where I get it from. Yeah, no kidding, man. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it, dude. I think you come by it more honestly than me. Like I fought for years. Cause I don't know. Like, I think it's something that a lot of creatives do. They put themselves in that box. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm just a artist and I don't think about all the money shit. That's for squares or I don't know. Squ square. What are you in the fifties? Like what I, is it, squares daddy? Oh, <laughs> like what is that? <laughs> yeah. But like, no, I, I had the, and again, it comes down to beliefs, but like, it took me a really long time to realize that, and it, it actually took me, like, it was when I started working for No Film School, like, I, I still believe that, like, I was just an artist, and like, this is something, like, I, oh, I'm now getting to write about my art, but like, that was my entry into the, into the world commerce. of like, yeah, commerce and content marketing, and like, that sort of picked up, and then like, I, I just started learning and learning and learning and going down the, the business entrepreneurship marketing rabbit hole. And here we are years later, but like, I, so I think the only thing I would stress is that if you don't, um, if you don't feel like much of an entrepreneur now, it is, it is possible to sort of develop that. And it's, it's, again, it's developing a new story. Like we've been talking about all along, you have to, you have to put in the work and make it happen, but mm -hmm. it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. It is. It, it's tough. I mean, I've been blessed to, to have that in me. I was an entrepreneurial first before I was, I knew I was an artist. So I, I was, a, I already came at it from that point of view. Uh, so that's why my first short film broken that I did, I was able to sell 5,000 DVDs of it because uh, I knew what to do on an instinctual level. All right. Let's, um, let's talk about that. Cause for <laughs> one, most people, like almost everybody in this industry has a belief that short films cannot be a product. You cannot sell short films, mm -hmm. but that is total bullshit. Like there's so many examples of people selling short films and making real money with them. So I want to hear the story of, of how you did this and how you sold them, how you, how you found people who wanted to buy this particular film. Um, mm -hmm. Give me, let's go into the weeds on that. Well, so I made Broken. It was a short film I did in 2005 and it was made for about $8,000. It had a hundred visual effects shots in it. Uh, at the time we shot it with a DVX, Panasonic DVX 100A, one of the best cameras ever. And uh, edited on Final Cut 4, I want to say. And uh, we did all the visual effects and shake back in the day. So it was all off the, off the shelf stuff. And uh, we, bit, we made this great little short film. It looked awesome. And no one had ever done anything online, at least, like this. Like, no one had seen anything like this. Independent films weren't being made at this level. Um, 
with this kind of like, I mean, all these visual effects and it was like an action movie and it looked insane because we got this great location. Like it was a really ambitious short film. It was about 20 minute short film. And when I was done with it, I, I said, well, I, I got to sell this. That was my first question in my head. I'm like, I got to sell this. I got to make some money with this. How are we going to do this? And I said, well, no one's going to pay to see this short film. Like there's no one's going to do that. It's just, that's just not done. And, and that was, remember, this is 2005. YouTube had just started at this point. So the, 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 we were well, years away from Netflix uh, coming along. So I said, well, there's an audience that I think I know. Those are filmmakers. So, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, interest in how I made this. So I'm going to put together a three and a half, four hour guerrilla film school explaining the entire process. And I did. And then we mastered a, a DVD, old school, like glass master, professionally done. We bought a bunch of them. We buy them at like a thousand or two thousand at a time because we were stupid. Um, so I was like, no, we're going to do this shit. And we did it. Uh, and then I, you could not go anywhere on the internet in 2005 that spoke any, no message board, no MySpace page. No place that that spoke about filmmaking and you did not see my trailer or you did not hear about this film. Uh, I, I was a, a fixture on DVX user. Like it was like a fixture on DVXuser.com or .net or whatever it is. And to the point where I eventually bought advertising from, from uh, Jared before he turned into the um, master of red camera uh, back when he was just a message board operator. And... Uh, I started selling them and I still never forget the day that I released it. And all of a sudden I just get my email over here. Ding, 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 ding. All these emails kept coming in from PayPal. I was like, Oh my God. And we like first day we sold five, 600 copies, you know, at 20 bucks a pop because everybody was so excited. And then me and my partner had to literally were like, Oh shit, we got to actually pack all this stuff. So we, <laughs> we had no systems in place. So we had to pack it. We hand wrote every single address. We hand wrote the return addresses. We stamped everyone with our own, like sticker stamps. You know, I don't even know if there were stickers. I think we might even have to lick them. I don't know, but it was brutal. And then like after the first 600, we're like, look, dude, we got to figure some systems out here. We got to figure this all out. Cause this is just way too, too much. So uh, it was great. And we sold, we sold over 5,000 copies of that DVD of doing it this way. And I actually, and I always say this in interviews and it, it still upsets me, um, but hindsight, of course, I actually put up some of the, I think if not the first, one of the first filmmaking tutorials up on YouTube, which are still up there and you can still see them. Uh, it's a, I think the user, my account was broken 2005 and they're still there. And I looked them up the other day and they're in standard def and they're a horrible compression because that was the compression back then. But they were like little mini tutorials I put up on how I did some stuff. And if I would have stayed on YouTube putting up filmmaking tutorials, oh I God. would own. I we were still literally years away from Rocket Jump. Yeah, years doing away from, their thing from Film from, Riot. Like yeah, from Film Riot was not even Ryan didn't even no, nothing. Yeah, I was literally the OG of that space, and I could have owned it. But what happened? My ego said, I'm a filmmaker. I am not a film teacher. I don't, 
that Steven Spielberg doesn't have to do this. So why do I have to? I, I was so caught up in the story that I didn't go down that road. And I, if I would have gone down it, it, we would probably be having a much different conversation at this point. But it took me 10 years to come up with Indie Film Hustle. And that's what happened. So, and, and there's a lot of things that happened in those 10 years as well. Damn, dude. You just have like the craziest life. What the hell? Did you see, Jim, Jim was right. The writer of Fight Club was right. Yeah. Dude, you haven't even heard half of this stuff, dude. I, oh, God. I have books and books and books I'm going to be releasing eventually. Just on the olive oil business alone, there's an entire book about my journeys in farmer's markets and working events. It's like carny life. Dude, the backstabbing, the politics, the payola. Oh, dude, it's insane. <laughs> I do, I do want to hear about it, but I think <laughs> that's another, the, no, that's a, yeah, for that's, the, that's, that's, that's off air right no. now. It's, it hasn't been released that I'm releasing that in my book yeah. eventually, probably four or five books down the line. I can't do it right now. <laughs> well, let's talk about your features, man. Yeah, so man. there are a couple of things I want to talk about with the first one. Um, but let's just t- talk to me about the story of getting that thing, um, getting that thing made, you know, um, the first one, this yeah, is yeah. Meg. This is me. So, so I, I I was attached to a project again by a, I was attached with a big uh, screenwriter and and we were starting to try to raise money and we were doing castings at you know big talent agencies already uh, on this other project and then it fell apart again and then I just looked at myself in the mirror I'm like dude you're you're gonna turn f-. I was I think I was I'm like you're 40 years old man. You can't keep playing this game anymore. Tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll be 65. Angry, pissed, and bitter because you never made a feature film. So you've got to just go out and do it. And on a, on a conscious level, I really did believe that I definitely had the chops. I had the chops 20 years earlier to go make a feature. You know, I made 20, 15 years early to go make a feature film. When I was running around with Jimmy, I could have made a hell of a good movie back then. But I was like, you know what? I have more than enough technical knowledge. I've delivered over 50 features in post. So I've gone through that process so many times as a colorist, an editor, post supervisor, VFX supervisor. And I've directed tons of commercials and music videos and shorts and stuff. I've gone through all of that. You've distributed stuff before. Like you got all, you got all the, t- why can't you make this? So I just said, well, I'm going to go make a movie. And then I called up my friend, Jill Michelle Mignon, who's a, a comedian, a stand-up comic and actress. Um, she was on Mad TV and a bunch in Reno 911 and a bunch of other places. And I said, Jill, I want to make a movie about your life as a, as a not 21-year-old uh, stand-up comic slash actress trying to make it in Hollywood. And I want to hear all those crazy stories you tell me about all the crap you have to deal with. She's like, okay. And 30 days later, we were shooting our movie. So that's something yeah. that, so you did, um, you didn't write a traditional script for this thing. It was a scriptment. So a script treatment. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, because that's something that I'm not super familiar with. What makes it a scriptment? How does that work? So a scriptment is basically just a very structured outline that has all the scenes of the movie in it with beginning, middles, and ends in each of the scenes and story beats in each scene that... Uh, will move the story forward. Now, 
actors have from point A to point B to get to, and they have to hit these beats. How they hit those beats and how they get to the beginning to the end of that scene is up to them. And that is where the fun part is. And also that's where the speeding up of the process is. Uh, so, I mean, I didn't come up with this. I, I was taking a page from Mark Duplass, uh, Joe Swanberg. These guys have done this kind of stuff. The Mumblecore movement in general did a lot of this kind of stuff. John Cassavetes uh, did a little bit of this as well. You'll be surprised at some of the movies that use this model. Iron Man was heavily improvised, according to Jeff Bridges and Joe, John Favre. Uh, that he, I, just, I just read the quote. That Jeff Bridges, like it, at least 15 to 20 times during that movie, it was me, Robert, and John in my trailer writing the scene of the day. You know, it happened on Bad Boys too with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence was like rewriting it with Michael Bay. Like, cause uh, that's, it, it happens a lot, more often than you would think. But when you have people who can do it. So that's the key with that situation. You have to hire good actors who could do good improv. And Jill just called up all her friends, all her Hollywood friends, who have been in huge movies. And, you know, my cast was insane. And they all said, sure, we'll do it. You know, and they saw my work and they, they knew it was for Jilly to, you know, be in her first starring vehicle. And we did it. 30 days later, we were, we were shooting. And we shot the whole thing in eight days over the course of six weeks because uh, we were working around people's, uh, around people's, uh, schedules and at the at the most i think we had four or five people on the set uh crew on the on the lowest uh, on the on the leanest day it was just me and jill dude you're you speaking know? my language right now like i'm <laughs> i'm all about the the lean mean crew um yeah and i just love this idea that because like so many people i think just because you hear the stories like oh i spent 10 years on my first feature and I spent just seven of those years yeah. getting the script right. And like, well, you're an idiot. Yeah. And you're just <laughs> shooting yourself in the foot. But again, it, it's fear and it's perfect. Yeah, like it's perfectionism. That's driven by fear. That, that it's comes fear. From that it's all stuff. fear. It's all, you're afraid of moving, you know, yeah. uh, you know, if you, if you're expecting to get a hundred percent, you will never get a hundred percent. The second it hits 80%, you got to go mm. period. That's basically it. Second you hit 80%, you go and you go full force. Cause if you don't, you're going to be sitting around waiting five years. Oh, I need this or I need that. Or it's, you're, just, you're just scared. You're afraid of moving forward. You know, oh, I want the best quality product. I'm like, dude, just go make something and see what happens. You'll learn more from that and you move forward. This perfectionism is just is ridiculous. And in today's world, you don't need a lot of money to make a movie. We made the movie for about five grand, you know, total. So, you know, and we've crowdfunded all of it. And we were basically in the black while we were shooting the film. So it was a great experience. What do you mean you were in the black while shooting? Because we raised the money. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so gotcha, I didn't, gotcha. it, you know, we didn't have, you know, we were good. So as an artist, I was just like free to do whatever the hell I wanted to, because I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to experiment. I'm not going to, I'm not even worried about the budget. I don't even, I don't even worry if this movie makes any money or not. That was my mentality. I had no attachment to outcome where a lot of my projects, if not all the projects before, all had an outcome that I was, you know, either it's going to blow me up, it's going to get me an agent, I'm going to get discovered, I'm going to win Sundance. Like there's all these stupid things that you attach to these projects that they can't handle the pressure of those kind of attachments. So Meg was the first project I did that was completely free of all of that. And I, was, I had such a fun time. Yeah. Uh, I look back and I watch what we did. I'm like, how the hell did we do that? <laughs> I was... I was 40 or 50 pounds heavier than I am now. 
Like physically, how the hell did I do that? I was exhausted all the time, you know, because it was I was carrying this huge rig that I built, you know, um, walking around with a, a black magic uh, uh, cinema camera, 2.5K. But I, I had built this huge ass rig, uh, you know, that was very cheap, but still like a lot of, you know, and it was very impressive looking. And I, I have pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that I look, I look like a Terminator with this rig on, like this kind of like sh- makeshift rig that I put together. But it worked. Uh, we were able to shoot. We never shot more than eight. I think the only, we shot one day that we shot 10 hours. Everything else was like five Dude. hours, six hours. Respect. It was just fun, man. Yeah. We just were like, okay, the scenes are done for the day. All right, let's uh, think we're done. Well, and you, <laughs> and you did this while you were running your post house, while you were yeah. running Indie Film Hustle. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's like, there's and no. I have, like, I have, and I have twins, and I have twins. And you're a dad, and, I, and a husband. And, I have, and, yeah, and, and a husband, yeah, 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 yeah. All that stuff too. <laughs> it just kind of blows my mind, dude. You make me feel like such a lazy fuck sometimes, like. <laughs> Swear. You're not the first nor the last person that says that to me, sir. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think it speaks to this idea that like the circumstances are never going to be perfect. Like your life is always going to be messy. It's going to be busy. You're going to have responsibilities that are going to yep. weigh you down in various areas uh, in various areas, but you're going to have to figure it out. And no, the bottom line, dude, no one gives a hell. No one gives a fuck. Like no one cares. No one cares about your circumstances. No one cares that you're broke. No one cares that your mommy doesn't love you. Doesn't care that you don't have a script. No one cares. So as soon as you come to grips with no one cares, then you can open yourself up to actually move forward. Because if you're going to play the victim in this business, you're done. No one cares. Period. Love it. (laughs) So... Let's talk about the business side of Meg. Because I know it's, is it on Hulu still or? No, no, we, it was for a year. I, I sold it for Hulu for one year. So it was just a one-year contract on Hulu. And it was, uh, it was a mir- I mean, not a miracle, but we, look, man, we made a $5,000 movie that we sold to Hulu. We sold it internationally to China, South Africa, and a few other countries. Uh, we self-distributed it through iTunes and Amazon and those places as well. And uh, it now lives on my own streaming service, IndieFilmHustle.tv. So it's making money. It still makes money. It's made, it, we made, we were already in the black before we started, but we, it was great. It was, it, it's, it was a completely successful film. Did I get rich off of it? No, no, but it's not the point. This is not paranormal activity. That's not the movie that I was making. I was just making a movie that I wanted to, to tell. I wanted a story that I wanted to tell. And more importantly, honestly, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Yeah. I'm curious. Can you, uh, are you open to sharing some of the, like, I know you can't share the details of like certain deals and things like that, but mm-hmm. I'm curious if you could like break out some of those revenue streams and share um, just a ballpark of what you're, of what you made, how you, how you did certain things. I'm just always wanting to get into the weeds of, um, self-distributing in the various ways that you can create revenue with a film like this? Um, the revenue streams were pretty traditional in the sense because it was, there was, um, there was uh, iTunes and Amazon and Google Play in those places. So that was just general rental and purchases that came in through that. Then the SVOD deal, which was through Hulu, and that came in through there. 
than uh, my own personal streaming service, which is honestly, it's one of the highest watched things on my streaming service because everybody who comes to my streaming service knows about the movie and wants to see the film if they hadn't seen it already. Uh, I haven't even done a, I haven't even done the director's commentary on it yet. I'm dying to do it. If I have a freaking second to do it, I want to do a director's commentary on it. Uh, but yeah, that, that those were basically the revenue streams off it. But because of of uh, what I was able to do uh, with the, the, I mean, I, I I generated other revenue through Indie Film Hustle because of This Is Meg. So I told people how I made it and you know, and I built out other pieces of content off of it. And there was just so many other types of revenue that came from it that is not directly because, not directly from the movie, but ancillary from the films um, through my own platforms and my, through my own audience. So yeah, it, it, you know, it has, it, it definitely has done um, well yeah. over do, the, you know, do you have a not six figures, not six, not figures, six figures, but it's five figures. For a film that cost you five grand to make, like it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a five figure film without question. It's a five figure film, yeah. and it's not the low five figures. So it's it's Beautiful. it did well and still makes money and still makes money yeah. uh, all the time. And me and Jilly uh, are very happy with the film, and uh, I, I still love the film. I look at it, I see all of its imperfections, of course. Uh, but you know, when you watch it, I was like watching it the other day. I turned on. Um, it sounds so crazy when I say this and like so egotistical. I'm like, I turned on Indie Film Muscle TV the other day. I was on Apple TV. I just opened up the, because every once in a while, I like to just open up the app to see how everything's running. So I'm like, oh, let me just look. And then I started watching it like while my wife was in the shower or something. And she comes out, I'm like, what are you doing? Are you watching <laughs> This Is Meg? I'm like, and I would, li- I would find myself fast forwarding to my favorite scenes. I'm like, hold on a second. I just want to watch this. God, it looks really good. Like I was like, I was like saying, like whoever did this didn't do a bad job. Like it was insane <laughs> to go back to it. But uh, I haven't actually sat and watched the whole thing in a long, long, long time. Uh, but it was such a fun experience to to do, and those th- that cast was amazing, and um, everybody just went on the journey with me. Like when I when I showed it to a lot of these, uh, when I showed it to the cast, most of them really didn't expect much. They were just doing basically a favor for Jill. But when they saw it, they're like, holy crap, this is a movie. Like there's a beginning, middle and end. And it, it actually looks like a movie because I DP'd that movie myself uh, as well. Because I'm like, why not do my first feature and also be the DP of it? Since I've never done it before. Rig. Yeah, yeah, with my Transformers <laughs> rig, exactly. So I, and, you know, and I did my audio with a, a Tascam and a road mic with a boom pole. And wh- whoever the uh, PA there was the day, he would carry it. If not, I would set it up on a C-stand. Uh, right out of camera like this is this is this is it's insanity it's insanity what i did uh what we did during that time with meg but it got done and i proved to myself that i could create a product that is is marketable that i could actually make that generated revenue and it's a model that i could replicate again and again i've just been so busy so many people ask me like why aren't you making more movies because you could turn them out so quickly i can and i know i could i could probably do four or five movies a year if i wanted to um, but I have Indie Film Hustle to run and I got other things I want to do. And now making movies is one of many other avenues of things that I use to express myself as an artist. Before it was the only thing, but now I write books. I'm a podcaster. I'm yeah. a blogger. Uh, I run a streaming well, service. I, I There's so many other avenues of things that so fulfill me. You just touched that, on something that I think is is really, really important for this this idea of like entrepreneurial filmmakers 
because I think so many people have this idea that the business is, it's just numbers and it's a grind, but what I found, and it clearly you have as well, is that the business, especially if you do it right, like there's, there's so many different like paths through the world of business, but you can make it as creative as you want it to oh, be. God. You can, you oh, can yeah. make it like this act of service to an audience, which is fulfilling. It feels great when you, when you cultivate an audience and you serve them and they are like, Oh, thank you, Rob. Or thank you, Alex. Or you know, like, the amount of satisfaction that you can get from, from that kind of thing and from running that kind of business is, is like, it's, it's the same as the satisf like a lot of the satisfaction that you get from like creating, creating art and shit that you're proud of. Like, so yeah, you can combine those two things mm -hmm. in a way that is just insanely fulfilling. It allows you to make what you want to make, um, make a living doing what you want to mm -hmm. do. And like, it doesn't have to be this like painful slog. Like marketing doesn't have to be like tricking people with like clickbaity ads and crap like that. Um, you can, you can make it as, as creative, as empathetic as you want. And mm -hmm. like, like, I don't know, that just came up for me as you were saying that. You're right. Like, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I find so much fulfillment. Like I writing my book, was one of the most fulfilling, most creatively fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. Because, it, it, you know, I, I mean, I, I hold it here. I see it. I watch it. I flip through it. And I'm like, who wrote this? Yeah. How, how did, did I write this thing? Like, I'm sitting there going like, I wrote it. But it's almost like out of a body experience, you did, know, like did writing you, uh, this. Did you traditionally just um, publish that or Yeah, I have a publisher. No, I had a publisher on this one. Nice. Yeah, so it was, it was uh, they approached me about writing a book and I was in the middle of writing this one. So it just kind of worked out. Oh, beautiful. Uh, That's something so, yeah, I may it, want to talk to you about at some point because I've I've got a book in me and I have for quite a while. You've got like your articles are books, dude. I don't know yeah. why you're not releasing books left and right. <laughs> it's a story, a story about like what it means to write a book. And right. That's, that was my story too. I'm like, yeah. I'm not a guy who writes a book. Yeah. That's insane. Why would I ever, I'm not an, I'm not Stephen King. You know, I don't write a book. That's craziness, but I am the guy who writes a book so much so that I've got the next three books that I'm going to write laid out already. Beautiful. So I'm literally writing my next book as we, I literally was writing it right before I jumped on this call and I will hopefully have it out by the end of this year. And, uh, and then I got my next book right after that. And I'll probably be trying to pop out a book a year um, for the foreseeable future, if not more, depending on a, how froggy I get. Yeah. <laughs> That's killer, dude. That's killer. Let's talk about, what is it called? On the Corner of Ego, the cor and, Desi Ego and Desire. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. That was my second film. Uh, and that was shot last year at Sundance. So we, we were the first narrative feature film to ever shoot a film while the Sundance Film Festival is going on because we're insane. And uh, it was a, it's basically I wanted to do like a, this is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, best of show for independent filmmakers. And that's what On the Corner of Eagle and Desire is. I wanted to make a film that, that showed not only the ego, the ridiculousness of things that I've done or I've heard other people do, the stupidity of the mistakes that we make and decisions we make as filmmakers. Also wanted to show the brutality of what the business is truly like 
but also show the heart and the motivation to keep going no matter what uh, in that. So that's the goal of the film. And I, it's one of my, it's the favorite thing I've ever shot. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever shot because I had a cast of thousands who had no idea they were in the <laughs> Uh, we gorilla-ed the entire movie. The ent- I shot two scenes in the Sundance headquarters while the festival was going on. I had no idea I was making a movie. Um, by the way, it was promptly rejected from Sundance. Of course. Uh, yeah. of course. Uh, and they were very well aware of it because my screening link was watched 60 times from Sundance alone. They just passed it around. Everybody had like, you've got to see what these guys did. You've got to see what this guy did. But I didn't get in for whatever reason. One day I'll talk to Bob about it, you know, when I get in uh so <laughs> but uh so we i just i basically went to sundance for four days and shot the whole movie in 36 hours shot it on the pocket camera not the new pocket camera the old pocket camera at 1080p and it was me my dp uh because i wanted to have a dp on this time uh because i thought it would be fair should do that probably uh i have a proper dp on it and uh, he was my camera guy, assistant camera. I was his assistant camera, meaning I grabbed the lenses and, you know, gave him the cards and shit. And then we had once, and we had a sound guy, which we ran around Sundance all around. And then I had one other friend of mine that he'd come in and just help us with whatever we needed. So basically we were a crew of four people, including myself, running around Sundance with three actors and just doing scene by scene, same scriptment policy, same everything. And uh, the actors I'd cast over Skype because apparently in LA, there was no actors who were willing to take the journey with me. I always say that LA actors like, what do you do? You didn't ask me. I'm like, well, you weren't around. <laughs> so I had to fly guys in from LA. I mean, for, excuse me. I had to fly people in from New York to Park City. And uh, they jumped on the journey, man. Because it, it takes a special kind of actor and everybody generally to do a film like this. But they trusted me. They knew who I was and my track record. And at the end of the day, they knew it at least would get seen by the world. But I told them straight up, I go, look, guys, I don't know what's going to come out of this. We might have a movie at the end of this. We might not. But you, what you will have is a story that you're going to be able to tell 20 years ago, 20 years from now, that you, were, you shot a movie at the Sundance Film Festival where nobody else in the world has. And that was the sales pitch. And then you get to, go, you get to come and sleep at, in a million-dollar uh, condo of my friends um, on Main Street. That's why we shot it because it was like right there and we were i'm like well we have access to this amazing condo we should shoot a movie and that's how the whole concept came about like i'm like i think it'd be irresponsible of us not to shoot a movie this year because we were i don't forget i was still doing interviews for the indie film hustle on the side so i made the movie on the side really it was like my side hustle while i was at (laughs) at the film festival it was insanity again 50 pounds overweight how i did it i still have no freaking clue i look at pictures and find the scenes videos and just I'm looking at myself like, dude, what the, like, how did I do this? So uh, we shot it and I, I, I still didn't know anything. I, I still didn't know if I had a movie when I came back. So I'm, in the, I'm, I'm on the plane coming back to LA and I'm like, maybe I have something. <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping we could break 70 minutes. Like that was my goal. Like I want to, like Mark Duplass says, if you can make a movie longer than like 71, 72 minutes, that's a movie. And our movie is 73 and a half minutes. So I just squeaked into it. And I edited the whole thing in about five days because there's not a lot of footage to, come, to pile through. So it was one, two takes, three takes and move on. And that was the end of it. Uh, there was barely outtakes. I, I do have some outtakes at the end of the movie. 
because uh, I needed to get to that 73 and a half minutes, but also because it was funny as, as funny as hell. And I literally, like, every outtake you see in the, in the movie is basically every outtake. Like there was just, we didn't have time. We just had to have time to, to, to screw around. And uh, we did it, finished it in post, and then, and then promptly submitted it to every single big film festival in the world and promptly got rejected from everyone except Rain Dance. We had the world premiere at the Rain Dance Film Festival in, in uh, London, England. And uh, I didn't realize how much a stick up these film festivals butts were far up were because it was basically a movie promoting Sundance and other film festivals don't want to promote the world's one of the large, world's largest film festivals at their film festival even though it's built for film festival audiences it's built for filmmakers to watch and yet it, it did not get accepted purely on the fact I think I mean I'm not saying it's the best movie of all time but man I've seen a lot of movies in my land and, and I could say that this is a fun movie and when I see it with audiences, people are pissing themselves and, in, 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 you know, because it's aimed at that, that audience. There's inside jokes. There's all sorts of stuff. So uh, I don't know why I didn't get accepted to these festivals, but it didn't. And I got, I, I eventually got, uh, got a screen here at the Chinese theater in LA, which was an awesome experience. And when I saw it on the big screen, because I had never seen it on the big screen before, I'd only seen it on my monitor here in my office. So, cause I didn't go to rain dance cause I, I'm not rolling that, that deep just yet. Um, so when I saw it projected, I was, I was in awe. I could not believe that that little 1080p camera could produce such a beautiful image on a big screen. It was stunning. Nobody believed me that I shot it on the 1080p camera. Like no one, it looks gorgeous. And I wanted that whole like super 16, 1990s, indie Sundance indie vibe. So there was like a little bit of grain and it was that, that sensor was a super 16 sensor. We used some really cool vintage lenses and all sorts of stuff to make that film look the way it did. And it was an homage to like every kind of film style. So there's my Kubrick shots. There's my, my cinema verite. I got a Ferris Bueller shot or two in there. You know, like I was just throwing every hodgepodge of styles I could in the film because I wanted to make it as a commentary on filmmaking. So why wouldn't you? And then that movie has, uh, is about to be released as of this recording. Hopefully within the next 30 days, I just got to get uh, the, the, the assets to my distributor, which I am going with a traditional distributor this time. Uh, but the deal is very good. I, I've had offers from other distributors that I turned down because I'm not, I'm not that filmmaker. Um, so I'm like, look, guys, you're not, I'm not doing a 60-40 split, guys. I'm sorry. It's just not not happening and I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And I need IFH TV. And they're like, well, we can't give you IFH TV. I'm like, well then I'll just release it myself then, man. I don't care. Like I made the movie for three grand. Yeah. See like, that, I so this is a question that I've, I've had for you all along. Cause you made a movie that is like tailor made mm-hmm. for the indie filmmaker audience. audience that you have been cultivating all these years. And you've got a, like, I have no idea how big your audience is, but it's, pretty sizable at this point i'm guessing i i do okay yeah (laughs) Uh, this guy um how did so what made you choose to go with a traditional distributor when you had what seems to me all of the pieces in place to be able to to release that thing properly and or to release it in like a direct to your audience fashion 
Yeah, I, and that's a question that has been asked to me a few times, uh, especially by industry people. They're like, why, why are you going with a traditional distributor? And I was like, well, the traditional distributor I chose can get me into places I can't get into. So uh, I'll get into, you know, 68 markets on Amazon within the day it gets released. I can't get into that. You can't get into that. You can't get into that without certain distributors. Most distributors can't get into that. The distributor partner I have uh, can. Then I'll they'll put it up on iTunes and then we'll get it up on uh, Tubi and some. we'll see if there's some SVOD that's interested. Probably not. Uh, so we'll do TVOD basically and AVOD. And, uh, and then I have Indie Film Muscle TV, which is where a lot of sales will come in and I own that. So I just felt that I don't have the energy yeah. or the time to dedicate to this because this film is one of a thousand things that I have going on right now. So, and, and I'm not trying to disparage the film. I love the film and it will be seen and it will be seen by a lot of people in my audience and outside of my audience. Uh, but I don't have the inclination right now to, to do it. I'm like, I made the movie for three grand. So I don't really have to make obscene amounts of money with it. That's not the goal of that movie. Uh, I will, it will be successful. It will be obviously in profit fairly soon uh, after it gets released. And the, and the deal I have with my distributors is, is a fantastic one as far as the cut and, and payments and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it, it made sense. It made, it made sense to do it. A traditional distributor <clears throat> would not make sense. And, and from the outside, it would look like I'm crazy. Like, why is he doing that? He could easily self-distribute. But even if you self-distribute, there are costs involved. If you go into these other platforms, it's going to be, it'll probably cost me my budget to put it up. On Amazon, iTunes, Google Play. Not to mention just putting just it up the, with this. Yeah, not to mention just the sweat equity. Like it, it takes a lot. Time. Yeah. What's the ROI? What's the ROI on that for me? Yeah. Does it make sense to me to build out an online course, to build out a workshop, to do private coaching or consulting, to write another book, to build out more content for Indie Film Hustle TV? Like where is my time? Where's the ROI or the ROT uh, more valuable? And promoting this film and spending all, cause I know what it takes. Cause I did it. It's a tremendous amount of time. It's a tremendous amount of sweat equity that at this point, I don't want to do. I just have too many other things going on on a business standpoint. It doesn't make sense. I will still be able to generate revenue from this film. I will still be able to generate ancillary uh, revenue from this film moving forward for years and years to come the way my deal is structured. Uh, and that's, you know, even if the worst case scenario is I didn't go with a distributor and I just submitted it, distributed it on Indie Film Muscle TV, I'm good. Like, I'm solid with that. I mean, seriously, it would be, it would be completely fine. So you got to look at, like, on the corner of your desire in many ways is a huge marketing thing for, for not only Indie Film Hustle, because uh, it, is, it is an Indie Film Hustle movie. Uh, we speak about, you know, my, my filmmakers go and visit the Indie Film Hustle podcast, searching for the producer that they're looking for. They meet the host of the podcast, which unfortunately is me uh, in there. So I try not to be too pushy about it. And I actually make fun of myself multiple times about like, because you have to, like, I don't want to, I want people watch it like, oh, this is just a thing for him to promote Indie Film Hustle and his podcast and stuff. It's not. But I'm like, in the story, I'm like, well, they're going to go visit a podcast. Why would I make up a podcast? It's, I have a podcast. Why would I hire somebody else to be a podcaster? I'm a podcaster. 
let me just do it. And you'll see me, like, I cut myself out of the scenes. Like, I literally crop myself out as much as humanly possible when, uh, when I can. Because I'm not an actor, nor do I want to be one. Uh, but it was, but for me, but for me, that, that's what this is about. Uh, and, and it's about getting it out there and showing it to as many people as humanly possible. And money is, is, is a secondary a point with this project specifically. But I promise you that just off the ancillaries alone, I'll make, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll yeah. be fine. Oh, I have, Over the course, I have no On doubt. the long term. On the long tail of this, we'll be fine. Yeah. I'm still making money off of Meg. I'm good. We'll, yeah. we'll be okay. We'll be okay. <laughs> Don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, about the distributor, not, not necessarily like the specific distributor, but just working with traditional distributors in general. Cause you mentioned you turned down a couple of deals because they yeah. weren't willing to give you what you want or they gave you crap terms. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what advice would you give to filmmakers who get offered these types of deals? What should they look out for? Um, sure. What should, what kinds of rights should they be adamant about keeping and owning themselves? If, you know, if that's something that they can do. Yeah. So first things first, I would always fight to keep uh, the ability to sell the movie on your website, period. That's one right that you should always try to negotiate in there. Whether, I mean, not everyone has a streaming service, but you can put it up on Vimeo and sell it yourself through your website. You could put it up on uh, multiple different platforms and sell it yourself. Yeah. If you want to. Uh, now, I would always fight for that. Uh, if you can carve out certain things uh, like SVOD or AVOD or TVOD or things like that. Which one? Is, could what's, try. what's AVOD? Uh, advertising video on demand. Tubi. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Tubi, which is basically where most money is being made now. Subscription and TVOD are not where the money is. AVOD is where the money is because everyone's getting tired of all these subscriptions. And the <laughs> big, and, yeah, the, they yeah. are. And and they're not get and and uh, they're not renting or buying as much as they used to, and they're just going back to old school. I'll just watch the commercials, so that's where Avod's turning into now. So we're now that's why Tubi and and these other platforms like I think Play, uh, Pluto and those kind of places that they give out free movies, you'll be able to submit to those uh, eventually and make more money on those, it's depending on the genre, of course, and and things like that. Uh, but right now, as of this recording, that's a, that's where the, the gold is at the moment. So uh, the 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 terms you should always get is try not to get anything more than five years. Uh, that's first off. Uh, always cap expenses because they're going to give you expenses like, oh, we're going to go to the American film market, we're going to go to Cannes, and it's going to we got to we got to make the poster, and we got to do this or that, and it's going to be all this money. Uh, you got to cap that number because if you don't cap it, you'll never see a dime. If you cap it, chances are you'll never see a dime. Um, it's just the realities of the situation. What I always suggest is when you're going to work with a distributor, look at the movies that they've distributed, contact those filmmakers. Just look them up on IMDb and email them and go, hey, I'm thinking of signing with these guys. What do you think? I get phone calls like that all the time from distributors I work with. And I, I tell the truth about them. I'm like, look, you know what? They're pretty good here. They're not pretty good there. Uh, the reporting is a little bit slack or, or lack and it's hard to get them on the phone, but you know, I have gotten money from them or I haven't got, or these guys are total creeps and these guys stole from me. And you know, you, that's the best way you're going to find out. You're going to find out very quickly that there's very few good ones. 
It's just, it's just a reality of the situation. And the guys who are at the other end of the spectrum, which is the A24s and maybe even the Orchards uh, and those kind of guys who are, from what I understand, very good, they're at a different level and they're very picky and it's going to be very difficult to, to get your film into one of them. Like everybody wants to get an A24. Like that's the, that's the new, you know, that's the new Miramax of its day. You know, it's, 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 it's the cool new place to be. Um, Neon is another one that's like a cool new place to be uh, as well. So there's a couple of those distributors that are, are new and up and coming that are, but they're, they're already at a different level than what you or I could access right readily. So uh, those are the big key points on distribution. Con- you know, like there's so many distrib- deals within the distribution contract, but just the terms, length, cap the, cap the uh, expenses, and reporting, have the ability to audit, um, how long have they been in business, call the other filmmakers. Those are really key things you should, you should look into. Nothing over five years, man, because, oh, and big, 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 big thing. Everyone listening, please make sure there is a uh, clause in the agreement, in the contract that states, if the company goes bankrupt, you retain, you get the rights back to your film automatically. Huge, huge tip, everybody. Because a lot of these, these predatory vulture style distributors will go bankrupt and then your film is stuck in arbitration for the next five years until the length of that term is up because you didn't have this clause. And now you can't make any money with that movie. A, you won't get paid from that movie and you don't even have access to put it out anywhere. So make sure that clause is in there. That, that alone is worth listening to this podcast. Dude, that's a, that's a damn good piece of advice. I love it. Man. <laughs> I love it. Like I'm, I said, I have some, I have some shrapnel, brother. I have some yeah, shrapnel. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's real good. All right. So, <laughs> You run a podcast and have been running a podcast for mm-hmm. God knows how long at this point, like four years, four years, almost four years. Yeah. I don't, uh, podcasting is hard, man. Uh, but anyhow, no, it's not, <laughs> well, it's, it's not easy. hard. I knock, so, I knock out three or I, four a week, baby. I don't know what I, you're talking about. <laughs> I make things way harder than they need to be. And yes, you do, um, sir. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, so that's why I think podcasting is hard. But well, right now I'm doing like these full uncut interviews for the first time ever. Like this is a new thing for me, and I'm I'm You'll just figure it out. And, and it's you, when freeing. you realize, and when you when you realize that this is it's okay. Yeah. That I said um, when you'll you'll be okay. It'll be fine. I promise you, you'll be okay. No one will die. <sighs> just sweat pouring down. Um. <laughs> so what I was getting at though is that in that time you've interviewed a shit ton of filmmakers, a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of successful filmmakers, some bigger ones, some smaller ones, some entrepreneurial ones, some ones who've gone through the whole traditional distribution process. And I really want to hone in on the people who are doing fresh, interesting things in regards to, um, self-distributing and being more entrepreneurial with how they release their films into the world. And so I guess my question in all of this is, what have you learned from these people? What are they doing oh. that's working? What are they doing that has been a flop? Like, I know this is a massive question that could probably take a, the yeah. question. It could probably take like another hour Hours. just to get through it. But like, if we could go through it in, in some broad strokes, maybe you can point out specific episodes um, 
if people want to go yeah. deeper on things. But yeah, I'm just, I mean, uh, I'm just really curious because you have this 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 broad swath of knowledge from having talked to so many people that I mm -hmm. think there's there's gold worth mining out of that. Yeah, there's um, it's a very large question, and there's so many different avenues and so many different techniques on how filmmakers have made their money. Like, I never had this guy on the show, which I was I wish I could have, but he made the uh, the Jake of the Jake the Snake yeah. documentary. Yeah. I forgot his name, but he uh, he was able to self-distribute that movie and became the number one documentary on iTunes, which is no small feat, because he built a product that was aimed directly at an existing audience that wanted to see that product. And I wanted it. Like I was, I grew up with Jake the Snake, so I saw, I rented it because I wanted to see what what the hell happened to Jake the Snake. Like what happened to all these old wrestlers? that I grew up with like there and they were all in really pretty bad shape. You know, it's, it's a brutal, I remember going to a horror convention once and George, the animal steel was there signing autographs and he was doing his shtick, man. The whole, ah, like, like he was like an old man. And I'm like, this, I even said to myself at that point, I'm like, wow, this is super sad that this man, you know, was in front of millions and millions of people. And all of a sudden can't even pay his rent. And he's got to do, this, you know, down and dirty horror convention in Fort Lauderdale. Like it, it was pretty sad. So the Jake the Snake movie was a great example of how to tap into an audience that's existing and build a product that they want to see, you know? And then they did uh, the Iron Sheik documentary, which was great, by the way. Have you seen Wait, the no. Iron Sheik documentary? No, which oh, one is this? so good. It's called The Sheik. Uh, it was on Netflix a while ago. So good. Because he is a character. He tells the whole story. Uh, do you follow wrestling? Did you follow wrestling when you were growing up? No, not really. Do you know who Hulk Hogan is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So before Hulk Hogan became the WWF champion, Iron Sheik was the champion. But Iron Sheik was the actual, like he was the real deal. Like he could kill you. Like he was a real hard, he was insanely powerful physically. And he was a trained uh, gecko, reco, Roman wrestler, like Olympic level stuff. So they would ask him, like, you know, we want we want Hulk to be the new champion because we, you know, we're taking this direction, and you know, we want you to give the championship back. And um, and and he's like, he gave he gave the championship to Hulk Hogan, and and he never got it back, obviously. But that whole story about how he came up and he's become like this Twitter phenomenon where everyone listens to the Sheik and what the Sheik says about stuff going on in the world. Great documentary. Another documentary aimed at that same rabid fan base. And you can look at documentary after documentary about baseball players, about you know, you know, whatever that might be, or feature films that aim at certain uh, existing audiences. That is... That is something that is very, very, very powerful because you have a built-in audience that you could arguably target yourself without trying to do these broad, monstrous strokes that you can't afford, like you know, buying billboards on Hollywood and Vine. Like that's probably not in your budget. Uh, and even then, you don't even know what the metrics is in those. Like how many sales does that actually turn into? You know? That is, so that's, that's um, one big one. Yeah, that's like the whole... <laughs> That's like everything I do these days is figuring out how to target niche audiences, like existing audiences that are not only like hungry for content generally, but they're dramatically underserved by 
what do you want to call it? Mainstream media by, by regular movies and TV, like that kind of stuff isn't speaking to their core identity in any kind of way. So if you can come along and make something that does that, that like validates their, their passion and their, whatever it is that they feel like that's how you earn their dollars. That's how you earn their attention in an economy where like attention is everything. Um, well, I mean, you look at um, faith-based movies, you know, yes. that is an audience that, that would, there was no faith-based movies years ago. Um, but because there's an audience of religious uh, people who really want to see stories about faith, about God, about Jesus, about whatever, you, they're, they're filmmakers who start creating those movies. Yeah. Um, I had, a, um, that's a huge, Kirk, huge market. <sighs> I, I actually hit, uh, I had Kirk Cameron's, um, if you know who Kirk Cameron is. He was a star from, uh, what was that show? God damn it. It was like not Full House, but like that was his sister. Um, yeah, it was one of those like, you know, different strokes, 80s movies. Um, I know people listen to him like yelling the answer. I'm sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> but he was a big 80s heartthrob. And he is uh, like the poster boy for faith-based movies. And he's built, and I had the editor, his editor on, and we had a whole conversation about faith-based movies and everything. And, you know, he was able to tap into that market very well because he already had uh you know fame and recognizability that he could tap into and uh, you know people who are in that field they're like oh there's that guy from oh he believes in jesus too great and then he's starting to put out those products so like fireproof and those other movies that went theatrical they were pulling 30 40 million dollars it's insanity so there's there's those demographic of people right now there's a lot of people going um and i know it's sad to say and i don't particularly agree with it but people who are making films for the right you know people who you know that are going after that that market people who want to believe in the same thing though with like like the lgbtq community like same thing you know like films specifically for them so that's what it comes down to for me is is identity is the big thing if you can tap into people's pre-existing um identities and their sense of self and the communities that they build around those identities and mm-hmm. make films specifically for that. Like that is the key that unlocks all niche audiences online. Mm-hmm. Um, so without question, no, without it's, question. It's, it's not, no, that's not a question. That's me making a damn statement. Identity yes. no, without <laughs> question. I said, without oh, question. With, yeah. oh, I thought you said, is that a question? I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. Without <laughs> question. Without question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't even know, man. Um, is there anything else that just, cause we're, we're I, like, I have no time limit, but I'm know that you're I have, probably, I, the, I've got, I got my daughters will probably be knocking on the door any minute. I told my wife to hold them back, but uh, <laughs> okay. they, yeah, okay. I probably got them, but maybe 10 minutes without any interruption left. Cool. Cool. So anything else that comes to your mind, just in terms of um, significant lessons you've learned from your guests? Oh man! Uh, and again, these huge, broad questions that could take days to answer. Yeah. Um, from people I've talked to, man, I, I, I never underestimate the power of the hustle. Uh, I never underestimate the power of being able to reprogram yourself and tell yourself a new story, uh, and change, upgrade your software in your mind, because that will move you forward in ways that you can't understand now. Most of us are running, you know, most of us are running Windows three one one. Uh, where, you know, we should be on the low, on the latest iOS. Uh, you know, it's the truth. It's just the absolute truth. Most of us are, are running programming that we had when we were seven. 
you know, and beliefs that we had when we were seven. And when you so when you go deeper and you actually really uh, do some real deep self analysis and are truly honest with yourself, that's when the magic happens. And that, I see that again and again from my guests and people who succeed and people who decides to take chances. You know, the Polish brothers when they went to go make for our lovers only. You know that I had both of them on the show um, a year or two apart, and we talked about it from each of their perspectives. One was the actor writer. The other one's the writer-director uh, while that was going on. And for people who don't know that story, they were the first digital feature film. Like they beat George Lucas by three months. Really? Uh, yeah, they shot their, that movie with a 5D mm-hmm. before anybody even thought about shooting a feature film with that, film, with that camera. And they shot it uh, basically with no budget because they flew out to France at, on vacation and they took an actress with her. And they just shot a movie completely guerrilla throughout France. It was a love story. And they, uh, that actress happened to be Stana Kadic, who is the star of Castle. And uh, she's a star of one of the show on Amazon Prime now. And, and the, they released it on iTunes before anybody was releasing stuff on iTunes. And they made half a million dollars with it. Um, so they did okay because they tapped into the audience of Stana. Stana's audience was like, wait a minute, she's making a lover's movie? I want to see that. And that was the end of that. And they, and they made a lot of money. But that was the bravery. These guys are studio directors. Like, they've worked with, like, $20 million budgets. You know, they've worked with huge Oscar-winning stars, you know. They did Norfolk and Astronauts Farmer and a bunch of them. They've won Sundance. Like, they, these are serious filmmakers. And they said, nah, screw it. We're just going to go out and shoot a movie with a 5D. You know, with like two people in the crew. Let's go. And that's what they did. So that takes a tremendous amount of bravery. And, and that's the other thing I learned a lot from my, my guests is people who are successful have to be brave, man. You got you to gotta break through your own crap. And you just got to go, look, I'm just going to go do it. And if I fail, it's okay. The more I fail, I always say fail and fail often. Because the more you fail, the more you learn. That's Love the bottom it. line. That's just the way it is. Fail yeah. as fail as often as you can. Remind, there's that old, whatever that saying is, it's like, everything you've always wanted exists right on the other side of fear and pushing through that fear. There's a quote by Joseph Campbell. I always use is like the gold or the treasure that you seek is in the cave that you're afraid to walk into. Exactly. That's it basically. And you have to be willing to, to go through that, to be courageous and oh, sorry, roommates home. (laughs) Go ghosts. Got it. Um, Yeah, man. I uh, I think that's it right there. <laughs> your room, your roommate screwed it up for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Uh, that's like the end of my list of questions, though. So. Okay. Um. I guess the only so there's a question that I'm starting to ask, or that I want to ask of everybody at the end of these like longer interview interview form or interview episodes. And it's another really big one, so you'll have to forgive me. But it's, what's your hope? Meaning for the, of yeah, meaning of life. Meaning of life is almost. Basically? We're almost <laughs> almost. What's your hope for the future of indie film? Um, I hope that uh, filmmakers start to take more uh, responsibility for their own endgame. Uh, they can't continuously work in the model, the legacy model that has been around for over a hundred years those that model is broken it doesn't work anymore you have to take responsibility for not only making the product 
but marketing it and selling it. And you have to understand and educate yourself on every aspect of this business. If you don't, you will fail, period. Sure, there'll be outliers. Sure, there'll be people that you'll, there'll be those lottery tickets that, that Hollywood promotes, you know, the Roberts of the world, the Robert Rodriguez's of the world, the Kevin Smith's of the world, the paranormal activities. They'll always promote those lottery winners. They never promote the millions and millions and millions of lottery losers every week. That's, that's just the way the game is played. So if you try to play the game like the studios do, you will fail because you do not have the resources or infrastructure or connections that they do. So you have to change the game. And that's, uh, that's what I feel that I hope the future lies in there because people are changing the game now. You know, people are, you know, building careers on YouTube, building careers on podcasting, building uh, streaming services and, and, you know, creating, you know, entire streaming services dedicated uh, to, uh, to niche audiences and, and, and finding other ways to make it as a filmmaker, make it as a content creator. And that is the future. That is without question the future of our business and of, of specifically the niche of our business, which is independent film. And I hope that, uh, I hope you and I can help people on that journey just a little bit more moving forward because it's, I'm tired of seeing, it's why I launched the new film. I'm tired of seeing these filmmakers get destroyed, you know, and ripped apart in this business. And all they need is a little information. And if they're willing to listen to the information and actually accept it and wholeheartedly take it into their, into their world, it can help them. It can help them, you know, and, and uh, something as simple as that little tip I gave you on distribution of to make sure there's a clause that if they go bankrupt, do you know how massive that is? I literally just talked, who was I talking to? I was talking to, yeah, I was talking to one of the founders of Maker Studios, Okay. You know, Maker Studios, the guys that they got bought off for a billion dollars by Disney. Uh, they're YouTube guys, right? The first feature this guy made, bad distribution deal, and he's like three years away from getting it back because he couldn't. And, and I'm like, he's like, yeah, man. And I got fans all around the world because of this movie. And, and I'm just, we're waiting for you to get it back so we can put it out ourselves, man. And I'm like, this is, this is the deal. This is that, this is even, it doesn't matter who you are. One line if in you, the contract would have, yeah. Sufficed. It would have sufficed, you know, and it's just, it's brutal, man. This business is so brutal. It's a beautiful business. It's a beautiful way of making a living if you can figure out how to do it, but it is absolutely brutal. And it will, like I was yelling earlier in this, like no one cares. It does not care about you. It doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about anything you want. It doesn't care about anything you think you deserve or are entitled to. That's this business. You know, it is what it is. And uh, that's kind of an analogy for the universe. The universe pretty much treats you the same way. It doesn't care what you think you want. You're going to get what you're going to get. Uh, you can try to manipulate it. You can kind of coerce it you could do work to get you to a certain place and have goals and things like that but at the end of the day there's powers around you that <laughs> will guide you in the way you need to be like right now if i tell you i'm gonna go i'm gonna go be an astronaut i'm going i'm going to i'm going to go to astronaut school and i'm gonna be an astronaut because i want to be an i saw first man i want to be an astronaut i want to be an astronaut i'm 45 i know i'm 45 i know i know i'm 45 I know I physically probably won't be able to, better yet, I'm going to go be an NFL lineman. I know I'm 45, <laughs> but I'm going to start training to go be an NFL lineman. I saw Rudy. I think he did it. I, I could probably do something too, right? 
no matter how hard I try, I don't believe that the universe is going to help me on that situation because it is not my path, period. You know, it's just not. And I'm not trying to tell people not to follow their dreams. But at a certain point, follow your dreams, but don't be an idiot. That's always, I always yeah. say that. Follow your dreams, but don't be an idiot about it. I think that's a good place to cap it off, brother. All right, man. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, and of course, you, I'm assu- and I'm and I'm assuming you will promote all of my wares at the end of this. My websites, my all the stuff I have. You have so many wares. Good God! Like, <laughs> take another hour to promote all of them. But yeah, I will. I will do my best to let the people know all of the cool shit that you're up to. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I'm always hustling, baby. You know me. I'm always hustling. <laughs> Again, I feel so lazy, but I'll catch up one of these Thank days. You. I'll catch up. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. So as promised, I have some wares to hawk before signing off. Now, the best place to find Alex is on his website, indiefilmhustle.com. And from there, you can find a lot of stuff. You can find his podcast, courses, the blog, and his streaming platform, Indie Film Hustle TV, which is just populated with like a bunch of filmmaking courses, micro-budget films, and all sorts of just cool video content for filmmakers. Also, if you're interested in the crazy true story of Alex nearly making a film for a mobster, just head over to Amazon and search for Shooting for the Mob. I haven't read it yet, but right after we had this conversation, I ordered myself a copy and it's now next in line sitting on my big stack of books here on my desk. And I'm pretty sure that's all of the wares that I need to hawk, but if I missed anything, sorry about that, Alex. Oh well. Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com slash newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, Just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace.